Well, we are starting a new sermon series this morning. And, and I want to start by asking you this question. Have you ever built a campfire? How many of you have ever built a campfire? Anybody, this is kind of a, a life goal of mine. It's a minor life goal, but still a life goal. Anybody ever start one from scratch? Like sticks rubbed together, anything? Anybody ever do that? No lighter? No, you have. Completely. Wow. Someday. Someday. Working up to it. Working out. Dieting right. Maybe I can start a campfire. That's cheating. <laughs> no, that's... Okay, that's smart. That's smart. No, I, I want to do the, the stick rubbed to, together. I, I actually... I do look at these things uh, online to teach myself to think, how would I do that? Because... We homeschool our kids now, and I'm thinking, hey, that might be a neat school project. Let's see if we can start a fire in our backyard. And we would be careful. (laughs) You know, we've been talking about hurricanes. There's so many things going on. Some things aren't even really hitting the news. There's massive wildfires out west, northwest, I believe in southern Canada. Just massive, enormous, fast-moving wildfires. Mexico just had, uh, I think, the greatest earthquake that it has ever had, or at least has had in the past 100 years. It's just one thing after another, isn't it? And it might seem strange. Why are we here talking about the Reformation? Why are we talking about, because that's what we're going to be speaking of, why talk about a campfire? Well, if you've ever built a campfire, whether you started it from scratch or not, you have to start with really dry, loose materials, little Strips of wood, little bits of cloth, right? What's that called? What's that part? Tender. Come on, Girl Scout. Tender, right? Okay. Just letting others participate. You start with the tender. This is the thing that will will ignite very, very quickly. Just a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a smolder, a little bit of a flame will get it going immediately. Now it won't burn long. And then what does the tender ignite? The kindling. Good. So kindling, smaller, well, what's that? Really, if you're using gasoline, you don't need tender or kindling. You just need you just need a can and fast feet. But don't do that; it's dangerous. Okay, so the tender ignites the kindling. The kindling is little tiny pieces of wood, bigger than the tender. Takes a little bit longer to ignite. You wouldn't necessarily be able to light a piece of kindling with a match. It, I suppose if you stood there for a long time, maybe you could eventually. But the tender that ignites quickly ignites the kindling, which burns a little bit slower, but will still burn out fairly quickly. What does the kindling ignite? The logs, the wood, the firewood, whatever it may be. Now, as a young kid, and I was a, a Cub Scout, I never made it to Boy Scouts, um, but it, fundamental to being a Cub Scout is playing with fire. It's, I think, a badge, fire player or something. At least that's all I remember from Cub Scouts, really, was playing with campfires. You would take a log and you would put a match on it. You'd try to light it and you really couldn't. I mean, maybe get a little bit of bark burning and it would burn for a second or two and go out. And you'd think, here's this log, here's this thing that's going to keep the fire going, but I can't light it. So you have all these stages, all these steps, all these layers, one that ignites the other. 
studying history is difficult because we want to simplify things. We want to jump in and say, look what this person did out of, apart from anybody else, look at this amazing thing or horrible thing. But the truth is, every person stands as a part of a process. They are informed by, influenced by their culture, by their surrounding history. And so as we come to this series, I want us to be careful that we look at the greater history of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, but we are going to zero in on this guy, Martin Luther. And the reason we're doing this is that on October 31st, which is 500 years ago from this October, we celebrate Halloween, but really as Protestants, we need to celebrate Reformation Day. This is a pivotal moment in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and of reclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that I truly believe, for the most part, had been lost. And Martin Luther asked a question on that day. He did this by posting a a piece of paper or several pieces of paper to a door of All Saints Church there in, I said I was going to use the German pronunciations. I'm not. I'm sorry. I can't. Wittenberg, Germany. 95 theses. Each one was a proclamation, a declaration that something is true. And these declarations questioned or raised a a discussion about something that the Roman Catholic Church at that time was teaching. Martin Luther was not trying to undermine the church. He wasn't trying to start a revolution. He was simply trying to start a discussion among this group of people, this church that he loved so well. But you see, there were all these different layers that had been been built up. There was tinder in place. There was kindling in place. There were logs ready. And those 95 theses in many ways were a spark into that perfect environment. And it would grow to a burning inferno. And so over the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at this movement that became known as the Protestant Reformation. Protestant means to protest. Because a group of people, which had started before Luther, but were really catalyzed by what he did and what he continued to do, and by the teachings and, and those theologians that came after him, they protested. They looked at the teaching of the day by the religious leaders and said, wait a minute, where is this coming from? How can we trust this? How can we believe this? It was eventually a very radical movement. And so, we're going to talk about this movement. What does it mean to be Protestant? What does it mean to look at faith through a Protestant lens? Why does it matter? Why is this important? And the way we're going to do this is through what's known as the five solas, the onlys of the Protestant Reformation. Now, these were, in truth written down or codified, if you will, later as a a summary of Reformation teaching. Some of them appear in writings of the time, in particular the first three. Let me just read the five of them. They are Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Grace alone, sola gratia. Faith alone, sola fide. Those are the three that really appear over and over in, in writings of Luther, Calvin, and others. 
These last two were kind of added on later as a summary of all of the ones before. Solus Christus, Christ alone, or through Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Really an overarching theme for all of the solas. Now, I've called this series Reclaim. And I want to talk first about why. Why Reclaim? Because to claim something is to declare something is true. It's to say this truth, this thing is mine. I I claim it as my own. This is true for me. And I believe that that's what Luther was doing. Luther wasn't trying to make anything up. He wasn't saying anything new. He was actually going back to the original scriptural writings and saying, wait a minute, we need to reclaim these. They've gotten lost. The word reclaim means to retrieve or recover. Often something previously lost or given or paid and you want it back to obtain the return of. It also means to bring something that was formerly laid waste or lost in a flood, to bring it back to usable land again, to reclaim. And that is, in truth, I believe what Luther did, and I believe we continue to have a need to do that very thing. We need to constantly, as followers of Christ, be reclaiming the truth of Scripture, taking our ideas, the teachings of our religious leaders, including myself as your pastor, but also our theologians, our contemporary authors, and our own ideas about God, and weighing them against Scripture and reclaiming what Scripture says about these things. We're looking at something that happened five years, 500 years ago. But again, that thing that happened 500 years ago that Martin Luther did was a reclaiming. It was reaching into the teachings of Jesus Christ, reaching into the truths about Jesus Christ, reaching into the New Testament and the Old Testament, and weighing that against what was being taught and seeing that there were, in fact, differences. I believe that we need to reclaim today. I believe these five core truths will be very helpful to weigh our own thoughts and motivations against. Although this happened 500 years ago, we need to look at these things. Because I believe that anyone and everyone who stands on truth tends to, over time, slip. And so you constantly need to be reevaluating, reclaiming for ourselves what it is that is true according to Scripture. Now, before we look at a grander historical background of the Reformation, and we will be looking at some history throughout this study. But I want to look specifically at Martin Luther. Because just as I believe God had prepared the world for what would happen there in Wittenberg, I also believe in many ways God had been preparing Luther. Luther was born in 1483 in Germany. Very promising student. Was thought to, uh, that he would go on and be a promising lawyer. His father had high hopes for him. But Luther had a problem. He was consumed with fear in relation to God. He was afraid that he wouldn't measure up. 
He was consumed with this doubt. How can I know that God accepts me, that I am righteous enough, that I have done the right things to earn God's favor? How can I know? And he thought, what is it or what kind of life could be led that had the greatest potential for knowing you were doing the right things and living for God? And so Luther became a monk. He gave up his worldly possessions. He gave up his future in law. He went into a monastery. And he took the orders of a monk. He spent his life doing works of righteousness. But the same old nagging problem was still there. Luther was afraid. He still couldn't be sure. You see, the more works of righteousness he did, and this is very telling, he wrote later, said, the more righteous acts I did, the more I hated God's righteousness. Because he saw God's righteousness and had been taught that God's righteousness was this legal standard that you and us and all of us and he had to live up to. And the more he tried, the more he saw how far out of reach it was and how far short he continued to fall. He performed his first Mass. The first time where as a a Catholic priest he would take the elements and he would declare the words that in that moment, according to the Catholic Church, that bread literally became the body of Jesus Christ. And that wine literally became the blood of Jesus Christ. And he sat there holding these and declaring these words. And he was shaking so badly he embarrassed himself in front of his wealthy father who had come to visit and everybody that was there. He barely made it through the Mass. Because the whole time he was thinking, who am I? This is Christ. Who am I? Now since then, and after that fact, Luther's ideas on what communion was, what the bread and the wine represented would change drastically and would form, in many ways, what we celebrate today. A symbol of Christ, not the actual flesh and blood. But here he was thinking, I'm serving God, but who am I to do this? Now, that's not a bad attitude to have. It's not a bad attitude for any of us to think, who am I to declare the name of Jesus Christ? Who am I to live for him? And yet, Luther had gone so far in his fear that it really negated any possibility of living for Christ at all. But the truth is that he was taking the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church to their logical conclusion. And he was struggling with them. He would go to confession Because he believed, he had been taught, that only those sins that had been confessed could be saved. And if he didn't confess the sin, then it was still counted against him. It wasn't forgiven. So Luther would spend hours, eight, nine, ten hours in confession. The poor priest would listen to every little errant thought, every little errant word, every little errant step, every little issue that he had ever possibly or even thought about committing, he would listen to. Luther records, after one extremely long session of confessional, he left and within 10 minutes, he went straight back in and sat down and continued for another couple hours because he realized he had forgotten some things. Now, 
We chuckle. It's cute. It's quaint. But this guy believed. He had been taught that his soul was on the line. And if I may, among all of his contemporaries in the Roman Catholic Church, I think he was one of the few ones that actually got it. He actually believed what they were teaching. He was actually trying to live what he had been taught. So many others were ignoring it. But he said, no, this means something. Luther had another problem. Luther realized that while he could change his actions, he couldn't change his heart. He couldn't change his desire to sin. And he couldn't change the fact that the more he tried to uphold God's righteousness and live out these regulations, the more he hated the God who required these things of him. So while he was doing all these holy things, he had this bitterness that was growing in his heart against God and his impossible standard. Well, for one who believed that any sin harbored in your heart would damn you to hell for eternity. You could see why this would be a problem. So the more he tried to gain his salvation, the further away from it he fell. And he was despairing. While all this was going on, he continued to grow and learn. He he was becoming known in the Catholic Church as a great teacher. He was assigned a great teaching position at a seminary. His job was to teach through the books of Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews. You could see where that's going to go. And it was in particular Galatians and Romans. And Paul, or I'm sorry, Luther's looking at the original Greek text, the, the translation that we'll talk about in a second, or a compilation of the actual Greek text that caused Luther to say, wait a minute, there's some things here that are out of line. Now, as I said, like all movements in history, there were many layers here. And I I think it would be unwise to think that Luther just popped onto the scene in a vacuum and did these miraculous things. There were a lot of things going on in philosophy and scholarship. The the world was beginning to make a transition from the Middle Ages to, or the Dark Ages to the Enlightenment. Reason was becoming uh, valued. Philosophy was important. People were questioning authority strictly on authority's sake and instead were asking, why? Show us where your authority is from. Along with this, there was a return to Greek philosophy, Greek culture. One way that this was important was a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus was a Catholic scholar, but he said, look, He was an enlightened Catholic scholar. He said, look, if we're going to study Scripture, shouldn't we study it in the original language instead of the Latin translation that they had used for centuries, the Vulgate? And so he, as I said earlier, he compiled a Greek New Testament that is still in many ways used today as one of the better compilations of the original text. This was the textbook that Luther used in his classes. And it shaped and it changed things. They found that errors had been introduced into the Latin Vulgate. One, which is still proclaimed today, Hail Mary full of grace. That's a bad translation of that text. If you go to your Bible, if you go to an NIV, a non-Catholic Bible, what you'll see is highly favored one. 
See, they looked at Mary as this reservoir of grace. You are full of grace and I need it. I need that grace because I can't get enough for myself. So I need to tap into your grace. This was a, a part of their religious movement as well. We need grace. We need to tap into the grace. So if I pray to Mary, some of her grace rubs off on me and flows to me. If I pray to a saint, some of that grace rubs off on me. Well, if I follow Jesus, I mean, he's got the most grace of all. Some of that will come to me. But again, it was a bad translation. There was a history before Luther as well. Men like John Wycliffe, 200 years earlier in England, and John Huss, 100 years earlier in Germany, both began questioning some key aspects of the Catholic faith. Both, or at least one of them in particular, based on going back to the text, translating the text into the language of the people. One of them was put, it, put to death for translating the Bible into the language that people could understand. And as I said, there was a whole history in the Catholic Church itself. They taught that you had to be good enough to be saved by God. You had to measure up to His righteousness. It was the standard by which all of us would be measured. And if you fell short, you were going to hell. Possibly spending time in purgatory that maybe possibly through a series of events you might be able to get out of, but you had to measure up. They taught that God gave us ways to measure up to His righteousness. Conduits of grace. Doing penance. Prayer. The Mass. Praying to saints. All of these things were means of grace that could fill up your account of grace to overcome your sins that were draining your account of grace, all in the hopes that one day when you get to heaven, it would all be put on the scale and you would be counted worthy. And of course, Luther saw this as a losing equation. Now one way to get the grace of people that were clearly more spiritual than you was to pray to them. Another way was to find things in history that belonged to them. They called these relics. A part of their garment. A, a tear that had been captured. A piece of the cross. They said it jokingly, if there were enough pieces of the cross that were available in Luther's day, if you put them together, you could probably build a house. It was known that many of these things were fake, but it didn't matter. If it tied you into that saint, that person or even Jesus himself, it was important. And it was good to pray to them. A big factor that led up to the Protestant Reformation was the fact that at this time, the Roman Catholic Church saw this as a way to make money. They needed to support their leadership. That's still a need in all churches today. We have bills to pay. We're going to go over our budget later. But they began taking it to an extreme. The cathedrals that were built, and some of you have toured these cathedrals, and i got to tell you, just personally, after reading Luther's biography, I don't want to see a cathedral. It angers me. Because these cathedrals were built ripping the money and the food off the plates of the peasants and heaping so much guilt on them you see, what they began to teach was you could go to hell and your relatives that have already passed away are languishing in purgatory, but you can get them out. What you need to do is give the church money. 
And they did this in many ways. These relics would tour the areas and they would charge money. Come on in. We will give you admission to the grace that is available by praying to this relic, but you have to pay first. Tons of money was raised. People went hungry, destitute, because they believed that they put money in that plate that their brother that had died, their grandparent that went before them, maybe they could get them out of purgatory. The Catholic Church actually began teaching some of these leaders that would go around that even some of the apostles were in purgatory. And if you give money, you could get them out. Can you believe these things? Now look, please understand me. Some of you are here today from a Catholic background. Some of you may be currently Catholic. I am not here to bash Catholicism. But these are historical facts. The Roman Catholic Church at the time of Luther was off the rails. It had fallen into such great disrepair and was teaching things so way out of line with Scripture that it was in big trouble. We'll talk throughout this series about the Roman Catholic Church today. My goal is not to criticize. My goal is to weigh everything against Scripture. As well, we will talk about some of our current practices and beliefs and do the same thing. Because we need to be challenged as well. This policy of selling these things, these opportunities of grace, of asking for money, was called indulgences. That word's going to come up again and again. One man from the area of, of Luther would come through and he would say this statement, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I'm not making this up. This is recorded in history. This guy would go into a town, write these things, declare these things, and walk around collecting money. It was this issue in particular that caused Luther to write his 95 Theses. Almost all of the 95 Theses are about the practice of selling indulgences. Because Luther, as a good Catholic, was looking at this and saying, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is so far out of the realm of what my church, my religion, should be doing. You see, they were a problem for Luther because he couldn't find them anywhere in Scripture. He couldn't find any way to justify this at all. And so, the 95 Theses were posted because Luther believed he was going to start a discussion about Scripture. Let's talk about what the Bible says about this practice. The problem was, that's not how the Catholic Church responded. In the discussions that went on in the years after this, the response of the Roman Catholic Church wasn't, hey, this is why they're right or wrong. It's this is why the Pope and the church councils have the right to do what they want. And Luther was floored. Because he kept waiting for them to say, well, this is why based on Scripture. And they didn't. He said, look, if you could convince me from Scripture that these things are true, then I will recant. I will say that I'm wrong. I'm just waiting for you to show me. And they didn't. The truth was, the Catholic Church had been or become about supporting its own power and authority. And Luther's 95 Theses, while he didn't intend this, was a threat to that. 
Now, the Reformation went on from there. And the truth is, the matter of indulgences became totally insignificant as the Reformation went on. In fact, a few years after Luther's 95 Theses, the Roman Catholic Church would stand up and say, that was wrong. Stop it. We're never doing that again. But it was too late. The Reformation spark had been set. The tinder had ignited. The kindling was burning. And the logs were on the fire. This was the spark of the Reformation. Luther did not set out to split the Catholic Church. He set out to ask some honest questions. He believed that every good Christian in the world would want to look at everything through the lens of Scripture. So I want to look briefly at these five solas just to introduce you to them. What we're going to do over the next 11, well actually 10 weeks, we're going to spend two weeks on each of these declarations. We're going to look at them from a historical and biblical background in the first sermon. And then in the second sermon, we're going to go back to Scripture and talk about us today. Where do we need to be challenged by these things today? How do we need to evaluate our current beliefs and practices against these? How do we need to reclaim them? Sola Scriptura is the idea that all truth needs to come from Scripture. That Scripture is the measuring stick. It is the, the, the guide. It is the, the foundation of truth for all things. If something is to be declared as true about God, it must be measured against Scripture. Now, for those of you that brought up, were brought up in a Protestant church, as I was, I think, well, duh. Of course you would measure it against Scripture. What else are you going to measure it against? But that's not the way people thought in Luther's day. And it's not the way some people think today. Some passages for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture comes from God. Not from a pope. Not from a church council. From God Himself. And one of Luther's key things was, doesn't the Pope have to uphold Scripture? Can the Pope do something contrary to Scripture? And the Catholic Church's response at that time was, yes, if he so chooses. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Oh, I got the wrong passage here. That's the right one. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hum, uh, though humans, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, look, Scripture is different. That's what it declares. It's different than the teachings of any human. And so we have Scripture alone. Then we have grace alone, sola gratia. We are saved only by the grace of God. The thing in our lives that meets God's standard of righteousness is not our righteousness. It is God's righteousness graciously given to us. That was the radical belief that Luther began to understand from Scripture. Romans 3.24 All are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Titus 3.5, He saved us not 
because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Salvation isn't through our efforts, it is through God's grace. But isn't there anything we have to do? He said, yes. Scripture says, yes. We have to have faith. Faith is the part of the human response saying, yes, I declare that, I receive that, I accept that to be true. But then we come to Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we learn that even that isn't credited to us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. As I've studied the history around this, and frankly, as I see what some people teach, Today, I think, have you just crossed this passage out in your Bible? Not by works, so that no one can boast. Have you not read Paul, where he takes all of his righteous deeds and he says they're filthy rags? They mean nothing. And it's only in Christ. So it's by grace, through faith, and only in Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ. Luther would go on eventually to abolish the Mass. He would abolish confessionals. He would abolish monasteries. He said, why? This whole system is set up to make mediators between us and God. And he says, we already have one. It's Jesus Christ. No man can sit in between other people and God. No pope and no priest. We have a mediator, and it is only in Christ. Ephesians 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He said, it's Christ It's Christ alone. And then finally, for the glory of God alone. God and God alone should receive all glory. Not a pope. Not a priest. And this is offensive to some Catholics. Not even Mary. That the glory all goes to God. The Old Testament says again and again, I will not share my glory with another. God says that. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Solo, soli deo gloria. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. All of this came together. And these five pivotal ideas... Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. They are a summary of what we believe as Christians today, as Protestants. These five claims needed to be reclaimed in Luther's day, but they still need to be reclaimed today. Scripture alone is being attacked. As experience is held up in the contemporary church as the end-all, be-all of Christian truth. Go with your heart. Go with what you feel. Instead of weighing those things against Scripture. Modern day people 
Teachers, authors, speakers are rising up and saying, follow me, do what I say. And some of these things are so contrary to Scripture that I wonder how a Protestant believer can still listen to them instead of saying no to that teacher and everything they teach. The concept of grace alone is under attack. We still have people preaching, if you give more money to the church, you will somehow be happier and healthier and wealthier. It's not all that different. And yet people are flocking to these teachings. The concept of faith alone is being bombarded by the acts of righteousness that we need to continue to do, the guilt that is heaped upon us day in and day out. The concept of Christ alone is under bombardment, as the Christian message is is interspersed and intertwined with so many other teachings. Yes, Christ is good, but so is Buddha. So are all these others. Aren't they all just the same? Oh, Luther would have cringed at that. He would have had some choice, probably non-repeatable words for that. He was not known for discretion in his speech. (laughs) And for the glory of God alone, I think contemporary Protestant churches, pastors, teachers, leaders, believers, need to remind themselves of that truth as well. We're not here to build bigger churches. We're not here to have the biggest budget. We're not here to have the grandest building. We are here for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. And one of the things that Luther latched onto in that concept, along within Christ alone, is that often Christ is held up and God is glorified through the suffering of His people. He said, if it's my suffering that brings God glory, then I will suffer. And yet today, I think in Christian teaching so often, not all, there's wonderful churches out there, wonderful teachers, but there are few that they just teach avoiding suffering. That it means something's lacking in your faith. Something must be wrong with you if you're suffering. Just give the church more money and it'll go away. Our goals of this series. I do want to look at the life of Martin Luther. He is an imperfect person. Later in life, he did some things and said some things that I cannot and we cannot agree with. But that doesn't change the fact that God used him in powerful ways. We don't want to make a new saint out of someone like Martin Luther or anybody. We're all sinners. But I do want to look at his life because I think it's very informative for us. And it's also interesting to see how God used a relatively common person like you or like me for great things. We're going to look at Scripture and see the source and the importance of these things. Weigh our beliefs, our current acts and practices against Scripture so that we are reclaiming Scripture alone. And as I said, I want us to look at and think about where do we need to reclaim these things in our lives and in our churches today? Where do we need to be challenged? Where do we continue to need to be reformed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it might seem odd given all that's going on in our world, given the catastrophes, to look back 500 years to something that seems irrelevant today. And Father, I don't want to do this to 
lift up and glorify the Protestant Reformation or Luther or any of those around him. But I do want us to take an honest and hard look at our own lives. To always be weighing our thoughts, our emotions, our declarations against your word. I want us to learn the lessons that were taught and even some of the mistakes that were made so that we could challenge ourselves and be challenged by you today. And God, first and foremost, I want to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is shining through all of it. Because in the midst of wildfires and threats of missile strikes and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, in the midst of it all, the greatest human need is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And I believe if we lose that, all the recovery efforts in the world, all the rescue efforts in the world, are just short-term things with long-term losses. People need Jesus. We pray this in His powerful and wonderful name. Amen.